Hello and welcome to this week's 1201 podcast. Uh, back in the chair again, my name is Callum Watt and I am here this afternoon with Bradley Alsop. Good afternoon folks, or good morning depending on when you're listening. And co-editor Ollie Walwyn. Hello there everyone. And the Indomitable Euron Hodson. Bonjour, salut, whatever, hello. <laughs> and uh, today, the 18th of October 2020, we're celebrating yesterday's victory by the New Zealand Labour Party and their seemingly uh, star, uh, shooting star of a leader, Jacinda Ardern, uh, <clears throat> who is being lauded across the world as um, basically the Prime Minister that everybody wants. Um, in their, her country, they have uh, limited the number of COVID deaths to just 25, uh, declared for the second time no community transmission. And on the basis of this phenomenal success, uh, her party, the New Zealand Labour Party, uh, has just won a majority uh, in the New Zealand Parliament, uh, which is all the more impressive considering they use a mixed-member parliamentary voting system, which means it's a, effectively a form of proportional representation. So the number of votes cast for each party more or less line up with how many seats in parliament they get. So it's therefore much harder for any individual party to gain a majority. Uh, this is the first time that a political party in New Zealand has actually won a majority since 1951, uh, and it'll be interesting to see what happens. Uh, hitherto, uh, Labour came to power in 2017, um, promising a transformative, uh, on the basis of a transformative manifesto, but they've also been, in order to uh, enact their policies, uh, in a slightly awkward coalition with a very right-wing localist uh, party called New Zealand First, uh, which arguably has acted on a, as a handbrake. Uh, some people have also argued, however, that Jacinda Ardern herself and the establishment of the uh, New Zealand Labour Party are uh, themselves to, considered to be quite moderate um, and may not uh, do very much uh, now that that handbrake has been removed. So it remains to be seen what happens. Uh, nevertheless, it is refreshing, I think, to see uh, a leader speaking in, in quite intelligent terms, I think, uh, uh, sort of having a more holistic approach to, to government um, and, uh, and basically not talking about uh, immigration or Brexit and uh, actually seems to have uh, done something about uh, COVID. Uh, what was your reaction to it, Bradley? Um, I mean, I, I think it, it's a uh, quite yeah. You know, looking at the stats, it's quite an incredible result. Um, ne- nearly twice the vote share of the, of the nearest opposition party. Um, so forty nine point one percent for for the New Zealand Labour Party, um, and just twenty six point eight percent for um, the National Party. So yeah, that that's that's an enormous parliamentary dominance, isn't it? It's a, it's a sort of thing. <laughs> I'm thinking of the the challenges that Theresa May faced over Brexit with a with a wafer thin majority in the Commons only propped up by the DUP. This stuff of dreams for Theresa May, um, and obviously what she was hoping for the 2017 election, but was denied. Um, I think 
I think what for me, I mean, I, I'm not an expert on New Zealand politics, so and and I've not read too much into the manifesto, so I might leave that for others. I think the thing for me that's interesting is how COVID has almost certainly, you know, played a, a huge part in in this election result. Uh, you know, Jacinda Ardern has sort of been held up across the world as the 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 way to tackle COVID, hasn't she? Um, and, and she's sort of, you know, been lauded certainly in the British press, and I imagine in, in other countries as well. She she's sort of been lauded as a as a bastion of of uh, liberal leadership, um, and I think that you know that's obviously been reflected in the polls. People obviously feel like she she's done a really good job. And you, you said you know the particularly low number of deaths that New Zealand's had, and they're and they're pretty much sort of uh, back to normal almost, aren't they? Really, certainly compared to to where we are and what we'll come on to later on the tiered lockdowns in Britain. So I, I think it's interesting. This is probably, you know, the, the first election where we're seeing w- what the impact of COVID and, and the perception of how leaders have dealt with it is going to impact on, on politics in, in the short to medium term. Um, and I, I think that obviously the, the next test bed of this is the US election next month, isn't it? Um, where, you, where you've got a leader that has done significantly worse than, than New Zealand in terms of tackling the, the crisis. Um, I think I think the, the problem for Britain is that our, our next election. Well, may, maybe we shouldn't put bets on when our next election is because it never seems to be when we think it will be. Um, but in theory, our next election isn't for another four years. So you know, w- will COVID still be as fresh in the minds of, of voters then as as it was for people going to the polls in New Zealand? I don't know. Yes, and we'll be talking about uh, local government as well, the the battle between the government uh, in this country and the metro mayors. Uh, we'll also be covering local government reorganisation, um, which is uh, has a few headlines locally. And of course, uh, I should also say uh, we'll be discussing the latest fallout from Brexit as well today. Um, but uh, Ewan wants to come in. Uh, you've got your hand up. Yeah, no... Um... As you mentioned earlier with New Zealand, like they did have the handbrake of um, New Zealand first on there, which it'll be interesting to see what happens. But the f- problem is, I think a lot of people um, view Jacinda Ardern and like the Labour Party from a perspective that, um, or like the British Labour Party, which is a very big, broad church of kind of different ideas. And so you can get everything from like, you know, it's it's the party that produced both Tony Blair and Jeremy Corbyn. Like, um, it's a bit more larger. Whilst New Zealand, like, I think the problem is everyone seems to have put the British Labour Party's views onto the New Zealand Labour Party. And whilst there are left-wing, more kind of democratic socialist people in the New Zealand Labour Party, it's more of a social democratic party. Like, like the people, like the kind of neoliberal reforms in New Zealand, weren't brought about by a um, conservative government. They're brought about by a Labour government. Um, so this idea that like New Zealand Labour is inherently going to be a democratic socialist organisation, oh look how great they are, they're doing democratic socialist things, I think is a flawed one. Now, if Jacinda Ardern uses her majority and actually manages to do the things that she wants in her um, manifesto, and she has three years to do it, then I think that will probably prove that she can actually be a transformative leader, and a lot of the problems of her first term in office were due to more more the um, New Zealand first um, contingency 
But if she doesn't do that, I think it will kind of show, I think, less Jacinda Ardern, I think, and more the New Zealand Labour Party, which is where the flaws are. Because I think everyone's putting more of the blame upon her as being like Prime Minister other than and ignoring the fact being that New Zealand Labour Party is not the most radical Labour Party in the world. It's not in general. It's quite moderate, even on the scale of um, British Labour. So we'll have to wait and see with this and see where things go from here. Yeah, it's. Um, <clears throat> I understand people's sort of reticence almost to celebrate. Um, I, I think for me, <clears throat> you know, watching her, uh, watching her speech um, the other day, yeah, okay, it's not, uh, and I've read the manifesto as well, it's not, it's difficult to tell how radical it really is or how moderate it is, because a lot of the policies uh, seem very specific to New Zealand, I was saying to, uh, I think, Ollie before we started recording, you know, there's a lot of stuff about um, land use, for instance, which is obviously very important in a relatively small uh, island like New Zealand, but also a sparsely populated one. Um, and there's all the Maori issues as well, which are um, very unique to New Zealand, to the point they have their own seats, I believe, in the uh, in the New Zealand Parliament. Um, but I think for me, it's just it's refreshing to hear someone speaking intelligently about public policy. Um, you know about there's a even if you look at the if you're questioning the fine detail i suppose of those policies which we must it's what it's what we do as political wonks there's a stated goal to um eliminate homelessness to eliminate poverty or, or at least reduce those things um it's also notable that they want 100 percent renewable energy as well um albeit, you know, 86% of their energy is already renewable. But nevertheless, you know, um, that would be still a significant achievement, very important in the in the context of climate change. Um, Ewan, you do want to come back, but I'll let Oli uh, come in and speak, speak first because you haven't spoken yet. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, come back to Bradley's point about um, kind of the, the reason for her kind of popularity. Um has been, I think, uh, having read into it a bit, um, it's because of how she's handled the pandemic. I mean, twenty-five deaths in the, in the whole of New Zealand compared to compared to forty thousand in this country. I mean, obviously there are massive differences in, in population density, and and but, but I think the the handling of the pandemic is has been in such stark comparison to a lot of the places like uh, like the UK, like the US. Like Brazil, that have just completely um, stuffed it up. To be honest, I think I think we're on the the cusp of having. It's a, it's a bit of a different point, but there's going to be a lot more kind of um, economic unrest. Um, there's going to be a lot more like international problems in this decade, I think, and there's going to be a lot more natural disasters as well. So if she can handle the way she's handled COVID to such a, an efficient uh, level, then I think uh, what well, I think she could be one of the most um, respected and potentially transformative New Zealand prime ministers in in history. To us, Bradley, and I'll come back to you. Yeah, j- just a, an observation. You know, if you, I, I think it 
it's a, I think it's an interesting challenge for for the Labour Party in New Zealand in that a, a lot of this seems to be attached very much to their leader, the popularity of their leader um, in terms of how she's handled the crisis. And obviously, it's not just her that, that's dealt with the crisis, but I think a, a, a lot of the uh, the a lot of the brownie points for, for dealing with it have probably gone to to her as as a popular leader. And if you look through, if you flick through the manifesto, you know basically every, every photo in there. Um, in that manifesto, there's about twenty odd photos. Every single one has her in it as as the leader. So it it does seem that this is very much the success of the party seems very much to be attached to her as a leader at the moment. Now, obviously, all parties um, succeed or fail at least in part to do with the popularity of their leader. Um, obviously, that was a notorious question for the Labour Party in the UK under Corbyn. Uh, but it it doesn't strike me as necessarily the, the best way to, to have long-lasting support if, if a lot of that support seems to be tied up with the popularity of a, of a specific politician. Um, so it is may, maybe, you know, the popularity of this particular politician, um, it c- could come back to bite the Labour Party in in the future if, if that has been, you know, if the party's been happy to accept that support from that, maybe that stopped them looking at wider transformational changes to its policy um, or, or, or other things like that. So it, it, it's just a, an observation at this point, but it, it is interesting to see how, how so much of this popularity seems to be tied to their leader. Okay. Uh, and you, and you want to come back? Yeah, no, it's just, um, I do understand where Bradley's coming from. Um, and the thing is, I <laughs> for, a, for an internet forum, I actually know a few um, like folks who are actually members of um, New Zealand main b- Labour, and they all admit that, like, yes, it is down to Jacinda Ardern, like, the popularity of. Um, and I think the Labour Party understands that. They know that it's, like... And they've been through this before. They've had, like, the entire thing of, like, New Zealand Labour is... The reason why they win is because they actually get a leader who's, like, popular. Like, you see all the times when it's, like, they've done really badly. It's because they've had, like, kind of... Um, usually like an awkward man in charge it seems to be very common um and it seems to be they've done well with like kind of more charismatic women so the kind of whole thing with new zealand labor is they know that's their problem they know they like have a problem you know that the minute jacinda arden leaves they're gonna have like some problems so and when she came into power it was completely by accident like it wasn't planned or anything it was kind of a churn after like a um election i believe is how she managed to get into office uh, to the leadership office so i think new zealand labor understands this problem and i think they're gonna kind of start <laughs> fighting to for now try and find ways to get around it of course they probably have arden at least for like another few more years she's quite young so I don't think they have the problem with other like times they've had leaders where they become like six years old and then they're like, I want to leave now. Job's too, too stressful. So we'll just have to see how things go. And yeah. I'm just looking at the uh, list of leaders uh, in on, on Wikipedia. Um, and you get down to, and they were founded 104 years ago. And they had 12, they had, sorry, 12 leaders up until 2008 um, and since since then in the last 12 years uh, they've had half as many again almost 
um, the Jacinda Ardern is their seventeenth. The previous, you're you're right in a way. The previous female leader they had was uh, Helen Clark, who I think was actually prime minister for nearly nine years. Uh, no, it, she was actually prime minister for nine years. Um, she was also leader of the party for f uh, nearly fifteen years. And then you look at the list after that. You've got, uh, let's see, uh, five men, um, none of whom reigned for more than three years. In fact, it's three years, one year, one year, one month, um, then two years. And Jacinda Ardern herself has only ruled for three years. So, yeah, quite a tumultuous period of uh, politics, clearly, for New Zealand. So maybe there's some relief, I guess, uh, to have some stability. Um, perhaps, but I mean, it's interesting if she is, if she does turn out to be this moderate centrist, and as we know that, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens now the handbrake's removed, as we've already discussed, we'll see what she actually does uh, in government. But, um, you know, she's, New Zealand's got this, this moderate uh, liberal centrist. Canada's got Trudeau. Uh, uh, France has Macron. Um, it's possible in November that uh, the United States could have Joe Biden. It could also be in a civil war, but that's another discussion. Um, and it's also possible within the next few years, you could have a, a very moderate uh, Labour Party uh, prime minister in the UK as well. So the, the question is, is this, a, is this a resurgence of sort of liberal centralism you know the jacinda Ardern, she's described as a, as a as a liberal icon um do we think that uh that, that liberalism is coming back and is that a, is that a in a way a good thing does that sort of stabilize global politics uh in a way uh because at the end of the day you know the rise of fascism certainly isn't good for the march of socialism um, either uh ewan I was just going to say, like, much of, like, how a lot of these liberal centrists, though, have actually managed to get in control, um, were mostly kind of due to, like, kind of almost a form of populism, as it were. Like, Justin Trudeau got in in 2015 on what many people are calling a kind of left-wing populist kind of rhetoric against the very long-serving um, Canadian Conservative Party, which had been in power for, I think, about, like... Um, 10, about 10 years at that point. So, and the same with Macron, he went in, he came in president, he became president on a kind of almost populist ticket where he's like, oh, vote for me, I'll give you all these nice things. Also, I'm not a fascist, unlike my opponent. And a lot of people went, yeah, <laughs> I'll vote for you. Um, and I wouldn't say Jacinda Ardern is a, pop, a liberal kind of, centrist populist if that makes sense because uh, that does exist um she seems to be a bit more kind of actually rooted in um the kind of very um the oddity of new zealand's labor kind of tradition which has always been um a lot says a lot more than actually often intends but they get stuff done every so often so We'll have to see. Um, I have to see if Keir Starmer manages to do that as well, but who knows? But I think 
it is a reaction in a way to the kind of resurgence of right-wing populism and that's not going to go away like saying you know the right wing is not going to disappear into the night they've had their moment and they're enjoying themselves they're not going to go away so i think something a bit more substantial will be needed if we want to be able to get a bit away from the constant kind of shifts between liberal centrism and a kind of uh, right wing kind of national populism so yeah okay what do you think bradley So sorry, I lost connection a bit there. Can you hear me? Fine. Hello. Yeah. 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 Sorry, what was the question? I lost connection. Oh, I see. So the question, what I was asking was, uh, you know, Jacinda Ardern was saying she's a fairly moderate. She might still be considered a socialist, but she's she's considered to be quite moderate. Canada has Trudeau. Uh, France has Macron. It's possible the UK could have uh, Starmer in in the next few years, um, and obviously, you know, most immediately in November, uh, the United States could have Biden, uh, but it could also be in a civil war. Um, is it? Um, is this a? Are we seeing a resurgence of liberal uh, centralism? As uh, centrism, liberal centrism, liberal centrism. That's it. Um, are we seeing a resurgence of that? Um, obviously, we probably don't think that's a good thing in and of itself, but is that preferable in a way to uh, the hitherto inexorable rise of uh, self-destructive global fascism that we've been seeing over the last five years in particular? I mean, it, it's obviously, you know, m- much more preferable to, to have Biden in power than, than someone like Trump, obviously. Um, but I, I, they, I think, you know, but that's only really, I think, in the short to medium term that, that that's preferable. Because in the long term, I don't think it really makes much of a difference. In you know, we're talking over the next century, because if we don't have transformational changes to to how politics, well, we, we're going to have transformational changes to to how the political and economic system works this century. The question is what they look like. Um, and and the Bidens and the Jacinda Ardens of the world aren't, aren't they're not promising to bring about transformational change to, to their countries. You know, they're, they're not planning to fundamentally change how those societies work. Um, they, they might well bring in some good policies that, that help a number of people um, in those societies o- over the next 20, 30 years. I don't doubt that. Um, and, and they'll put an end maybe to, to some of the policies of, of the likes of Trump w- would bring in that would harm people over the next 20 to 30 years. So I don't doubt any of that. But when we look at a slightly longer term view, when we look at things like inequality, uh, when we look at things like climate change, they're, they're not pledging the things that need to, need to change. And I mean, for, you know, for me, I'm, I'm a socialist. So ultimately, I think we need to get rid of capitalism and, and the quicker we do, it, the less pain there'll be. Um, and and uh, you know, if we are looking at a return to liberal centrism, um, I, I think it, it, it's more preferable in the short to medium term. But in the long term, it doesn't do what's needed to do to, to stop a, a lot of a lot of pain and social um, dislocation that's coming our way. Uh, I, I would also say we maybe shouldn't be too quick to to say we are seeing a return to liberal centrism because you know there's still plenty of countries um, around the world that have got 
nasty, quite nasty right wing leaders, um, you know, ruling them. If you, if you look at Brazil, um, if you if you look at uh, Russia and Hungary, um, you know, so I, I think it's probably a bit too too soon, and obviously our own country as as well. Um, I I don't have particular faith that Keir Starmer will be able to take us to a victory anytime soon. So. Um, yeah, maybe we need to be cautious before heralding the return of, of um, the status quo and, and, and liberal centrism. And I think ultimately, you know, if they're not dealing with these these massive issues and the fundamental things that are wrong in society, then what what we will see is is a, a very quick return to to more extreme politics. Um, and if if the left doesn't sort itself out, then that will again be the far right. You and you want to come back. Yeah, I just want to make one final point, um, is that Adam Curtis talks about this in a podcast where he says that uh, the main problem with the left at the moment, he was talking in uh, 2017, but it's still a problem, is that it doesn't offer change. Like, um, as Bradley was saying, like they don't offer change. They, they offer, we're going to manage the uh, current system, but slightly better, a bit more... Um, stable we'll make sure that things are a bit nicer for you and that's where like that's the vac and that leaves a vacuum which um the kind of national populist movements can kind of fill in so i think the left needs to like not just go well you know liberal centrism is what worked for us so well last time and they actually need to like start considering um ways out of this cycle of well you know we'll go centrist and then you know, where they go centrist and then right-wing kind of populists come in and then they have to deal with that and they have problems with that. So I think left-wing parties need to offer something a bit more, something that actually changes the system in some way instead of just managing it. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's uh, that's our entire purpose, I suppose, uh, to to argue with that. Well, most, most of us on this podcast, anyway, I've certainly spent most of my political career uh, arguing that we uh, need to be more radical uh, not just for moral reasons but also electoral ones as well um, but we'll um, we'll return to that it's been quite a while talking about uh, what's happening in uh, New Zealand but we have our own crises here of course uh, obviously there's uh, the beginning of the second wave of the uh, COVID pandemic which everybody knew was coming but apparently except for the government uh obviously as the weather gets cold it just seems obvious to me uh, as i've said in previous podcasts as the weather gets colder you know our immune systems lower we're spending more time indoors with other people of course the transmission rate was going to increase um and of course the government has done everything it can over the course of the summer leading up until I would say about a month ago uh, to encourage people to go outside, to go back to the workplace, to go out to pubs and restaurants and so on. Uh, so it's no surprise really that the, the, the R rate has increased. Um, but, and, you know, having had the experience of, uh, of, of the lockdown earlier this year, the government doesn't want that. They seem to have acknowledged that they can't just pursue uh, a policy of herd immunity. So they have been playing whack-a-mole. That's not just us 
uh, being rhetorical about their strategy. That's actually the, the government. That well, that was actually the government's uh, strategy for dealing with COVID. Whack a mole, uh, as Boris Johnson put it. We we put Leicester into lockdown. We put uh, you know uh, Manchester into lockdown. All of these different places. All of them have been, and and those local lockdowns have been criticised quite thoroughly by scientists and by political commentators uh, for being imposed from the top uh, with very little consultation with, with local government, uh, if at all. Um, now a couple of things have changed. Uh, we're seeing much larger, the government's introduced this three-tier uh, lockdown strategy, uh, medium, there's no easy um it's just go straight in at medium uh then high and then very high um and this and they are actually finally consulting with local government but it's not going particularly well because the uh, metro mayors that have been that have been set up over the last sort of 20 years uh, a neoliberal initiative sort of copying america in a way we have a local a local mayor who's elected by the people. Um, suddenly, maybe this idea doesn't, isn't looking so attractive to the neoliberals because those metro mayors are now using their democratic legitimacy and their weight uh, to challenge the government. And the reason they're challenging it, as was very eloquently described by the mayor for Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham, um, is that you know earlier this year when the pandemic was primarily uh, in the southeast of England, London, and so on, uh, we had a national lockdown to deal with this. It was a great sense of solidarity. Most people complied with it. Um, now, obviously, the uh, hotspot of the pandemic, possibly even worse, is in the north and the northwest in particular of the country. Uh, and now those areas are being put into lockdown, but there's no, furlough, no proper 80% furlough scheme put in place like there was uh, earlier this year and a lot of the metro mayors including uh, Andy Burnham are holding out they won't agree to having a local lockdown unless those uh, that furlough scheme is put in place but of course every day that this goes on means that more lives are being put in danger so it's a complicated moral question Obviously, there's accusations that the North is being treated once again as a sort of second class state almost uh, within the population of England. Uh, who wants to who wants to come uh, come back on that? Uh, Ollie, you haven't said anything for a while. Well, well I prefer um, the term hokey cokey to whack-a-mole because uh, it's, it's one one step in, in lockdown and one step out of lockdown. I, I just think we've seen um, now, I think we have enough evidence to kind of conclude that these that the policies of, of whack-a-mole, the policies of local lockdowns just are, are ineffective. And I, I can see why um, like local mayors are, are using their, their kind of democratic responsibility, I suppose, um, to kind of question the government to hold them account because they're actually wanting to do, they're actually um, kind of standing up for for the, their, the people of their city in their interests rather than the government who just kind of want to want to uh, pull their kind of authoritarian kind of lockdown over them without 
giving them the proper support. I think that's the real issue um, in all this. It's about people, like actual people, having financial support, um, but also feeling supported by their government. And I think we just don't have that. So I think that there's the problem. And uh, as, as you say, the longer this goes on, um, it's putting more and more people at risk. Things are probably getting worse. But I think, I think in in a way, they are right to to kind of stand up to the government in some respect. I mean, there's been a lot of um, back and forth. There's been Michael Gove this morning, which who was accused uh, Andy Andy Burnham of posturing, which is a uh, which is kind of rich. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I think. I think they are right to do it in some way. You think they're right to try and impose these local lockdowns? No, sorry. I, I think um, the mayors are right to stand up to the government on this because if they feel like their people aren't getting proper support, then that's a real big issue. Mm. Well, yeah, li- lives are lives at are, uh, risk, not just from the virus, but people could be made homeless. I think they current deal is two-thirds of one's income instead of 80% before. Uh, Bradley, what do you think? I mean, uh, I, I think it's... Um, it, I think it, I can understand why the government's come for, for the, the local lockdown approach in that, uh, you know, they, they can fa- fairly accurately, well, questionable with test and trace, but there is, to, to some degree, they have the ability now to... to assess rising cases by local area and obviously the logic is if you can shut down a, a city rather than a country you know there's going to be less economic and, and social and mental health fallout for, from all of that so I, I, I can understand the logic behind that but I think it does run the risk and this is what we're starting to see of um, less acceptance of the rules because I think when we all went into lockdown at the start in in, in March there there was um you know there was a, a genuine sense of we're all in the same boat here. We're, we're all going to have to put up with this together. And no matter what part of the, the country, you know, your friends and your family were, you all had that that shared experience of, of going into lockdown together. But we don't really have that now. So, you know, we, we've got some cities that are in are in some, some form of, of harsher, you know, or stricter measures. Um, but they may well have friends and family in other parts of the country that are, are broadly being able to live their lives, you know, as normal-ish, um, as much as you can at the moment. So I, I, I do think there is a, an issue now that of, of the political acceptance of, of, the, of, the, of the restrictions. And I think that will get worse the, the, the longer on this goes, the longer we have country uh, cities like Liverpool or Manchester in, in, in stricter measures than other parts of the country. I think that the longer that potential resentment grows, um, and I think that's only been made worse by the government, um, you know, completely failing to consult with, with local leaders um, throughout the crisis. That they're starting to try and do that a bit more now, I think. But but it, it to you know they failed throughout to properly communicate with, with local authorities. The, the test and trace should be in the hands of local authorities. They've got expertise in that in that area already, um, and they know their local areas better than than the government does as well. So. Uh, I think it's always going to be tricky going down the, the, the local lockdowns route, but I think it's been made far worse by, again, a familiar story in this pandemic, but by government failures, but this time particularly to communicate and, and, and give you know local leaders some, some decision-making capacity in this. I think that has made it worse um, and, it, and it's made it harder maybe for, for some residents in some cities to, to really trust that the government's doing this for, for the best of reasons. Hmm. 
Ewan? Um, I think one also one of the main problems with uh, local lockdowns as well is that the um, Tory government is having problems in actually trying to like, well, in giving money essentially, which no surprise there, but it's very odd that they're doing it and also kind of shows off the kind of very short termism kind of look that they've had on the pandemic where it's like well if we look at it in the short term we need to make more you know we need to have more growth and what have you and not looking at the long term which is um so in the short term you know they don't want to be giving as much money to um like you know andy burnham or the um steve rotherham or you know any of the mayors in like um in like Manchester, you know the tier three cities uh, which is very foolish because then if you look in the long term, um, they're going to be they're going to have lots of people unemployed. There's going to be less tax that you can use to pay off your debts that you've accumulated whilst um, you know trying to run a country during COVID. So it's just all very foolish of them. It's not even like good politics. It's just. It's just them kind of like trying to awkwardly repeat the same things that they know very well and just failing badly at it. Um, so yeah. Hmm. I think. Um, I think. I, I, I'm. I'm wondering actually if the uh, if this will actually turn government away from uh, these sort of big metro mayors actually sort of being able to challenge the government in this way um, because if um, I saw an interview yesterday with um, one of the more sort of conventional local leaders um, uh, I think it was for uh, Blackpool I think um, anyway what he was saying was a late it was a labor leader um, and he said that he felt that the government effectively blackmailed them into agreeing to go into a lockdown without any without any enhanced uh, economic protections for their citizens, uh, because the line was basically taken. This is quite similar to uh, how the government has consistently threatened uh, local governments who try to or who have threatened not to make cuts in the austerity era, um, they said, well, if you don't agree to these measures, then we'll just impose them anyway. Um, and they might be even more severe than, than whatever you might want. Um, so this increase in, in uh, local power through devolution perhaps might, become, might be becoming less attractive uh, once the pandemic is over, Bradley. Yeah, I, I think you're right, but but also on the flip side, might it become more more attractive for for some voters um, if if they've seen, you know, their their local mayor or their local council leader sort of sta- standing in their eyes, standing up for the city and and, and its economy and its jobs, um, against a, a you know a Tory government that that you know hasn't really communicated properly and has bungled the response to to the pandemic so i do, i do think it'd be interesting to see what impact that this might have on on voting in those areas and i've not i've not mapped it out or anything but i i imagine a number of the red wall seats will fall under um, or or if they don't already at some point soon will will fall under areas that are under uh, sh- stricter lockdowns because it seems to be the, the northwest and northeast of, of england that are particularly affected by these at the moment 
So I, I do think it'd be interesting to see what it does for the, for the politics and voting intentions for, for some of those seats that, that Labour lost at the last election. Um, mm. uh, but also just to say, you know, all of this shouldn't even really be a, de- a debate, should it? Because we should just be going into a, a two or three week lockdown, shouldn't we? National lockdown. It's, it's the only way we're going to get a grip on this crisis. That's certainly what the scientists have been calling for. Ewan? I will just quickly say about the circuit breaker is that the one that Keir Starmer is proposing, I don't think, um, I don't think it goes far enough as in, because they still like, because the one that like Keir Starmer is saying is like in two weeks, we're going to, um, we're going to have like, you know, we're going to have a two week lockdown and then we're going to close all these things, but we're going to keep schools open. And that feels a bit, odd that like I, I understand why they want to keep schools open but also like I think one scientist said yeah you can keep schools open but we wouldn't recommend it like would much much prefer a kind of hard sharp lockdown because you'd still be having people who are like you know your kids going to school and then they get infected because that's been happening and it's like what's the <laughs> I that's just my problem with Starmer's approach to it, where it's just like, let's keep the schools open, but lock everything else down. It's like, okay, <laughs> all right. I mean, the, the thing about the schools is that um, we don't have much data for transmission amongst kids or between kids and their parents and kids and their teachers because the kids largely don't get sick. They don't so show symptoms. But that doesn't mean they're not carrying the virus. They're biological humans. You know, and this is a virus which, by the way, has already made the leap from animals to humans. Why on earth do we think that they wouldn't make the leap to a child into 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 an adult? You know, and where's the line? It doesn't think, oh, no, no, this one's under 16 and I'm not going to infect him. You know, that doesn't, that's not how a virus really works. They're like walking petri dishes sitting in a, uh, in a room together or um, actually sort of playing outside together, which you can't control. And so obviously there's going to be transmission in schools. Um, I don't, whether that means because our economy is so reliant on schools effectively acting as day nurseries. And if you don't, if you close the schools, that effectively means you're preventing parents from going to work in many cases, which is obviously then has an effect on the economy. I, I really don't think it's much to do with the education of kids at all. It's much more to do with the, the health of the economy and allowing parents to go to work. At least that's my view. Um, I don't know if you feel similarly, Bradley, or if you're going to contradict me on that point, but um, we'll come back to you, Bradley. If you're there, I oh, sorry, I was on mute. I was on mute. Sorry, and um, I mean just on that last point, uh, I, I undoubtedly that's going to have an impact on on the government's um, you know appro- approach to schools and, and probably more important more important to them. But uh, I, I do think the school school should be probably you know pretty much the last thing we close if if we are going to be closing things. I think you know we, we should be closing pubs and restaurants much much earlier than we we look at closing schools. So I, I do agree with the point that schools we should keep schools open as long as we possibly can. But at the same time, you know if we look at doing the circuit break for two or three weeks, 
Um, one of those weeks is half term. You know, at, at most then we're looking at students and um, you know, potentially it is in two two weeks. You know, I think I think schools should be able to survive that. Uh, I suppose the other thing is, and people have made this point, is that a lockdown is sort of just delaying the inevitable um, unless we actually use those three weeks to to build up the test and trace capacity and and, and sort out what's going on with that that mess of the system at the moment. Because all it will really do is is bring cases down over that three-week period. But then, you know, we come out of lockdown two, three months down the line, we'll be in exactly the same position as we are in now, if not worse. So, so you know, a lockdown on its own isn't going to stop it. What it does is gives us time to build up our capacity and sort out the problems that we have at the moment in containing the virus. Um, so, you know, three-week lockdown, yes, we need it. It's important. But only if the government's actually going to use that time wisely. And it has to introduce... I, I, it really has to introduce some kind of... Well, they're going to use this two-thirds, two-thirds thing, but it really needs to be a furlough because so many people are just going to lose their jobs i mean i remember at the um at the beginning of the pandemic obviously i used to work in the hospitality industry a lot of people in the hospitality industry especially those working for large companies that can afford to that, that pay their workers n- next to nothing and discard them and treat them like discarded tissues um you know that swathes of people just got made redundant uh just overnight in that period between uh, a lockdown becoming likely uh, and them saying they were going to introduce the furlough scheme. And and this is why uh, Andy Burnham and the other Matro mayors are putting up so much resistance to it because they know that's what is coming, is, is a wave of, of joblessness uh, that could result from implementing a circuit breaker badly. Ollie. Yeah, I just wanted to come back to you, um, Bradley's point about um, if we were to go into a national lockdown, would the would the Conservative government actually use the time wisely to to fix the uh, the mistakes that have been made so far? Um, I, I don't know. Do we do we think they're actually capable of doing that? I mean, the, the first kind of time around when we had to develop a, a national test and trace system. They use it as an opportunity to to outsource um, more public money to to private private firms. And I just I, I don't know if I I don't know if I kind of trust them. I mean I, I don't trust them obviously, but I, I don't know if um, they'd ever they'd ever actually do something in the interest of, of people like that and build a, a truly like functional system with with that um with that with that time with that money, or, or whether they just see it as another opportunity to to outsource more, more money. Um, I don't know. I, I think it's an interesting question to ask. Hmm. Do you want to come back to that, Bradley? Or... And I, I think, I, I think, I think we have to push for that. Uh, whether whether I actually trust the people in charge of the government, obviously not. Um, but you know, that that's true of anything. That doesn't mean we we, we stop calling for things. You know, I, I wouldn't trust them. To, to, to really handle anything properly. That's why I would, I would always vote against them. But um, that doesn't mean we don't call for things. That doesn't mean we don't put political pressure on, on for things that we think we need. Mm. Okay. Well, I think we'll um, move on to our next uh, topic, which is sort of related to the last one. A uh, bit of local, local news. Uh, we had the um, confirmation this week that there will be no 
local government reorganization in Lincolnshire. So we've been discussing Metro mayors. Uh, a few years ago, there's a proposal on the table to create um, a mayor of Greater Lincolnshire, uh, which never made much sense to me because I thought well, at a county level, surely it should be an earl or a count, an elected mayor, uh, earl or count maybe, uh, that should be ruling over a county. Um, and uh, that proposal, it was, I think it was struck down in 2016. Um, it had been years in the making and eventually uh, the local, uh, local authorities couldn't agree and it was, uh, and it was scrapped. Um, but Lincolnshire County Council, they wrote to or the leader specifically, Martin Hill, uh, who wants to see a unitary of the whole of Lincolnshire, uh, wrote to the government asking to be uh, included in a new wave of devolution. Um, but the government wrote back uh, last week and they said that we ain't got time for this, basically. Um, there's already several uh, that are going ahead up in the, in the north of England, uh, in Cumbria, for instance. Um, but the proposals were sort of nationwide. There are a lot of local authorities that were uh, faced with the prospect of becoming unitaries. Um, and in some, in some cases, that was disadvantageous to local Labour councils. And in some cases, that was disadvantageous to local Conservative councils. Of course, we know a lot of councillors in dual authorities are also councillors at district level and also at county level. Um, so they may have had an interest uh, in, in not wanting things to change. Uh, they like having two paychecks. Not that councillors really get much money for being councillors anyway. That's also a common uh, misconception. Uh, but the uh, the proposal has been uh, knocked on the head, um, but not forever. Certainly, uh, the minister who wrote to uh, Lincolnshire County Council in reply wasn't even the the, the um, uh, minister for local government. It was one of the uh, under secretaries uh, for something or other. Uh, but he. Uh, he wrote, well, you can you can submit proposals if you like, but we're not going to enact them or we're not going to do anything with them uh, for now. But uh, there is also, of course, the prospect of local re uh, government reorganisation coming in the future. Uh, and obviously the concern for uh, Labour in particular is that you know, while we're pretty strong in the urban areas of Lincolnshire, we're not very strong at all. Uh, out in uh, out in the countryside, so there was the prospect of our uh, Labour voting urban centres living under permanent Tory rule and Tory rule uh, effectively controlling everything from healthcare to housing to education, everything that local government does. Um, but there's some air of celebration, I suppose, that this has been uh, struck down. Um, what was your reaction to it? Bradley, you've got your hand up, but I don't know if that's from before. Um, does anyone have any thoughts on it? Sorry, it, it, was, it was from before, um, but I will come in and just say, I think, I think it, it, it's good in the short term because obviously um, it, this was very much being driven by our, obviously a Tory government and a, and a Tory-dominated county council in, in Lincolnshire. So I, I, and I believe, you know, their, their sort of favoured model 
would probably see the Labour Party locally locks out of power um, unless you know, some drastic change um, with voters in those areas. So I think in the short term, it's a good thing. It's, it's a cause for celebration. I'm not really opposed to the idea of, of yeah. looking at restructuring local government, but I think it should be something that's much more sort of dri- driven by the public and, and in consultation with the public. And I, I don't think this particular proposal, you know, there's not really any impetus from it from, from the public as far as I can see at the moment. It seems to be a bit of a pet project of um, certain Conservative county councillors. Um, so I, I think it would be good to revisit the issue of local government restructuring in the future, but in a much more democratic and, and grassroots way, I think. Mm. Yeah. I do agree with um, Bradley on that in that like, if you want to restructure government it should be in a more democratic grassroots, right, grassroots way because I do believe that like, if you are a member of the Labour Party and if you do believe in democratic socialism you should also believe in the idea of like giving more power to um, well diffusing more power to um, individuals across the country and giving them the ability to like have more power not only as themselves but also as like a collective so i think restructuring local government could be a good way for that but as bradley said it should be more democratic it should be more grassroots it should be more the voice of the local public instead of the um voice of someone from the county council going this will be a nice idea because i think it will help us in the long run so yeah Any thoughts, Arnie? Yeah, I don't. I don't know much about the, the restructuring or the intricacies of the way the councils work. But um, I just wanted to ask, um, what were the the legalities of this kind of restructure, where it would benefit one party, and it's almost like a power grab, in the same way as um, as gerrymandering kind of works? Is it is it something that is allowed in in our very lucid constitution? Something to stop them because obviously we've got if um, the UK Parliament, the House of Commons, mainly with the House of Lords, is sovereign. So if they decided to allow Lincolnshire to become a unitary authority, which would mean, as I said, as I said earlier, they have complete control over all local government services rather than them being divided uh, with waste collection be, uh, and housing and um, uh, you know local parks and, th- and things like that and some planning uh, being uh, delegated to districts uh, whereas uh, some other planning this is a there's a there's a weird split between uh, planning planning legislation and who has responsibility for it um, and healthcare and education being primarily with the county council. Instead, it would all be part of one unitary authority. And there were alternative proposals, like, or, or uh, not even proposals at this point, because the process hadn't even been started, but um, it has been discussed, uh, the possibility of Lincoln merging with, say, North Kesteven, uh, and or and or... Uh, West Lindsay, which are the two neighbouring district authorities and forming unitary out of that, or completely redrawing the boundaries um, so that Lincoln takes in um, Skellingthorpe and Metalham and some of the other surrounding villages in order to reach a population of 300,000, which is uh, the sort of arbitrary benchmark for the creation of a unitary authority. But again, 
um, you know, that's that's just an established precedent. That's not even a hard and fast legal rule that you have to have 300,000 people in order to make it into a metro authority. Um, you could make a unitary out of out of the district of Lincoln if you really wanted to. Um, obviously, the advantage of having a, a large authority is it also increases the tax base. Uh, and there is some that I suppose is a moral argument there as well in that uh, the population of Lincoln increases by about 50 percent during the day um, from people who live out in those villages and use local services. So there's an argument then that perhaps those people should contribute to the, towards those services and have a say ho over how they are run. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a, there are some arguments for local unitaries, um, but there's nothing to stop there from also being what would, what from the left's perspective would be a, uh, an apocalyptic disaster, especially under the first past the post voting system of, of a unitary uh, authority of the whole of Lincolnshire, which has been the last time it wasn't in conservative control was in in the mid 90s and even that was a very flimsy coalition between labor and the and the liberal democrats a very successful one because of course it brought the university to lincoln but nevertheless um not a very uh, stable or secure one from a, from a socialist perspective um well, that's the legal position but we'll have, we'll have probably return to that in years to come as I say if the government goes off the idea of creating metro mayors and and devolution uh, if the cumbria process drags on for instance uh, if this experience with andy burnham uh, turns them off maybe they uh, may, maybe they'll uh, they'll drop the idea uh, entirely of course the other reason that uh, they don't want to pursue uh, we've got a, a little bit of time left uh, for everyone's favourite topic, uh, which is uh, Brexit. Uh, now it's looking more likely than ever that we will be going into a no deal situation. Uh, the uh, possibly catastrophic uh, results of that are probably well known. Um, there is still obviously the opportunity, the possibility that there will be a deal. We're in uncharted waters. Uh, there may be uh, another extension, but nobody's talking about that. Um, do we think that uh, a, a no-deal Brexit is likely? And what do we think the implications of that will be, Ewan? Well, um, just to go on uh, uncharted waters, as it were, um, I know one of the main reasons why we've been having a lot of problems trying to get a deal is, le well, it's a mixture of, Boris being stubborn and not caring, but also it's because um, Macron and whoever the Belgian representative is uh, want more fishing rights, which is, and when I mean want more fishing rights, um, mean they want to literally fish in British waters because <laughs> they've a French fishermen have been fishing in um, British waters illegally for like years now, so that's been one of the problems. But I think one of the things to think about with like a no deal is a no deal in a COVID situation will be awful, but also it won't be economically, weirdly, as bad as it could have been if it was like a year ago and there was no deal, if this makes sense. Um, 
because everyone is kind of on a more slightly more level playing field in terms of economy like it's not going to be great it's going to be probably very bad um it's not going to like it's going to probably add even more to um problems but i don't think it's going to be as the kind of dramatic crashing out as it was in um as people foresaw in like 2019 it's not going to be singapore on the thames for the conservative government but it's not going to be like the doomsday predictions i think we've got i think it's going to be somewhere kind of this very bad in between where it's just a bit shite do you do you uh, do you agree with that ollie is it is it going to be a bit shite um i don't know i don't know what you're referring to there because i think we throughout the pandemic we've we've increasingly seen like um massively increased um amounts of inequality so i i, I don't know i think we're almost we're still not in the in the same boat obviously and as they keep kind of trying to say we are there's still people that have massively uh, benefit benefited in a, in a lot of ways from from vote leave and are going to massively benefit from uh, a no deal brexit but i think obviously the hardest hit are going to be the the british people you know the, the poorest in society again which is just going to be catastrophic in in many ways and uh, he keeps saying that the, sorry, Boris keeps saying that the the EU must kind of change its approach to talks if they're to be reached. But uh, you can just it's so con- completely transparent to to anyone paying attention um, to just kind of uh, over exaggerate what the EU are wanting to get out of of the talks um, and continuing continuously blaming the EU for failures in negotiating. I, I don't think they're ever willing or ready to negotiate i think it was just it was their kind of plan all along to to feign outrage and and then kind of walk away and, and look like a look like a, a good leader in some really weird kind of um abstract way i think the um the, what the government wanted was a uh, they said they wanted a canada style deal and actually i kind of believe that because the thing about uh, CETA, the uh, the deal between uh, Canada and the European Union, uh, is obviously it gives them. It doesn't really control, uh, you know, Canada's internal product standards. Uh, it doesn't control their state aid, um, which is bizarre that in a way that, you know, a neoliberal government. Or a hitherto neoliberal government like the Conservatives um, is so concerned about state aid when the UK is one of the lowest users of, of state aid. Um, but nevertheless, it's a sticking point for them, probably because they've realised that um, if we leave the EU with no deal, our economy is going to be completely in the shite, as, as you put it. Um, and probably a lot of businesses will require propping up with government subsidies, um, so that might be a sticking point. A sticking point for them, um, but the 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 EU is not going to take that. They're not going to allow the UK government to renege on standards. And by the way, workers' rights are included in that. By the way, um, to create that Singapore in the Thames within effectively 
the European economic area. It's just not going to work for them. You know, imagine if we were producing really cheap products uh, and, and crap quality products as well, which we could then just pump directly into the European economy. Um, it's just not that that's that's the reason why this deal isn't going to happen. Um, because that's what the UK government wants to do, and they're not going to move on it. And the EU is just not going to allow uh, the British government to do it. So that's why we're going to have have no deal. I mean, there are potential, you know, advantages in the very long run of doing it. You know, if at some point we have uh, a Labour government that's more willing to take more command in the economy, then potentially that gives us more control. But uh, personally, I've never thought it, it, it's worth it. Uh, does anyone have any thoughts on that? Before we, before we close, I feel like we need to have a more positive message to end this podcast on. Bradley, do you have any thoughts? Uh, no, not any positive ones, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, Bre- Brexit's always been a, a terrible idea. Uh, and they deal Brexit even more so. Um, I I don't actually. Sorry, I'm usually able to come up with something reasonably positive. Uh, I'm struggling to think of anything at the moment. I I think I I'm just astonished in a way. I I go back and watch sometimes some of the videos that were speculating on what was going to happen in 2016, and the sort of consensus, the intellectual consensus, was that you know. The political establishment, even those who had argued for Brexit, hadn't actually wanted it to happen. They were just doing a power play, effectively. Certainly, that was the case of Boris Johnson. Obviously, as we know, he just wanted to become prime minister and back to leave because he thought that would be the best way of achieving that. Uh, and they didn't really have a plan. And they've been making it up as uh, uh, pretty much as they go along. Um, so the, there's almost a catharsis, I suppose, at, at this point of uh, seeing it all play out and um, seeing what happens to 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 the UK when those uh, those chickens come home to roost. Um, maybe we'll end up as a vassal state of the United United States. Possibly we'll end up going back into EU and we'll have to surrender the Pratt Pound. I think those are the two outcomes. But I mean, again, a little bit like the uh, prospect of becoming a unitary authority, there's advantages to that you might see in the long run um, a, a, an increased sense of solidarity, perhaps between uh, UK workers and EU workers once we share the same currency and economy effectively. Uh, if we want to see transformational change to our political system, we will need to do it on a continental level. Um, there will no longer really be a prospect um, of achieving things within our nation state uh, alone um, if we go back into the European Union. And if we become part of the United States of America, well, actually, just a side thought, I can see you and Scotty's hand up. Um, but uh, there's been an, uh, a long sort of political battle uh, to get uh, Puerto Rico as the as as a state uh, in the United States. And one of the reasons why 
it won't be accepted as a state is because it's a democratic majority. Um, but if the UK is perceived as being a right-wing antidote to that, um, it's actually more likely that they might be accepted as a state if the UK is becoming one as well. So that that, that could be a weird sort of segue that um, that, that kind of results from Brexit. Um, Ewan, what do you think? Um, I don't have any merry or happy notes to end on, but I do have a a music one at least, which may put a uh, pin in your uh, that Britain's going to become a vassal state of America. Is that one of the biggest trade deals that we're getting at the moment isn't with America or anything, it's with Japan and it's because we're finally getting a trade deal with Japan that allows us to sell Stilton to them. So maybe uh, instead of becoming a uh, American vassal state we'll finally achieve the uh, nightmares of 80s cyberpunk writers and become a vassal state of Japan. <laughs> well there's a thought. Um I, I, for one, welcome our uh, our new Japanese emperor. Um, I, I think I think that will be uh, that will be an even more interesting uh, uh, segue, wouldn't it? Um, Ollie, your final thoughts. Well, I think that would still be uh, less authoritarian than than Boris's government. Maybe it's a very conservative country, Japan. Well, yeah, that's true. Well, it will finally mean that the Liberal Democrats get to win because the Liberal Democrats are the party of Japan. So maybe we'll see a Liberal Democrat Conservative alliance. Um, oh, that ends well. We know that ends well. <laughs> yeah, but this time the Liberal Democrats will win because they've dominated Japan since 1955. So, yeah. But look, it's, um, it's all just going to be very interesting. And th- those of us who started studying politics in the staid world of 2010 when it was all incredibly boring. Uh, you know, we've got uh, the potential right, uh, return of that sort of politics, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast. We've got demagogues mm-hmm. like Trump who could create a civil war uh, in North America. Um, you could uh, have Britain uh, going cap in hand back to the EU and becoming a more enthusiastic, albeit begrudging, member of the uh, of uh, of the European superstate, or we could become part of the United States of America. Uh, all of these possibilities could come in the next ten years of uh, of, of global politics, and uh, and I, for one, uh, as a, not just as a, as an activist, we will always be campaigning for. Emancipation of the working class and the interests of of ordinary people. Um, but from an academic perspective and a political perspective, I think it's all going to be absolutely fascinating to watch uh, and to take part in the making of history. Um, you know, we. Uh, what's the uh, what's the? Uh, I'll, I'll perhaps I'll I'll end with the 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 uh, famous quote um, from. Uh, from from Gandalf, <laughs> perhaps that um, we do not ask to be live in interesting times, but we have to do the best with the time that we're given to us. That's not the quote, but uh, uh, I think it's a positive note to end. And uh, hopefully, if the world doesn't blow up in the next week, we'll uh, we'll see you uh, next time. And it's goodbye from me. 
It's goodbye from Ollie. Goodbye, everyone. Stay safe. Bradley. Goodbye, folks. And Ewan. Au revoir, as they say. See you next time.